0: you listening to what goes on here and i'm sam walker whoever we are and whatever we do we all have moments when we feel like we don't quite fit with the world around us what goes on here is where you can listen to real stories of people who at times couldn't see a way forward people who found themselves stuck maybe in a life they never imagined would be theirs people who had to face their fears face themselves but they changed and changed lives of people around them too Episode one, Fran. Francesca Barker is an award-winning business owner. She's a baker. Raised in an adoptive family, she grew up alongside her brother and had, in her own words, a great childhood, a very
1: fortunate childhood. We were here, there and everywhere, did lots of exciting things, holidays, good schools, uh, bouncy castles, absolute craziness. I think I very much idealised this uh, lovely childhood that I had.
0: Fran's also a former drug addict and a convicted criminal who less than three years ago faced a prison sentence.
1: When they were reading out the verdict and the judge had made a decision, the man with the handcuffs came and stood next to me in the dock and I thought, she's not even opened her mouth and they're ready to take me. So how does one
0: person get themselves into so much trouble and then find their way out again? When you truly believe you're not worth saving... How do you save yourself? How does your past define you, even when you
1: don't know what it is? And I stood there in complete shock and I thought, God, there's no way back. (laughs) No.
0: When did you find out you were adopted?
1: Uh, Straight off from the beginning. The first time I met my parents was on a farm with our foster parents, which was amazing. And uh, they rolled up and they were like a princess and a prince in a white Mercedes with leather jackets on, looking very snazzy and blonde and just groomed, and it was amazing. And I fell in love with them instantaneously, so much so that when my mum was about to pull out, having met my brother and I, I grabbed hold of her hand and said, so will you be my mummy then? (laughs) And that was the beginning. So um, I've always known, always known, and uh, always appreciated whether that's how it turned out or not. Do you think they fell in love with you instantly? Very much, yeah. My mum's not uh, very emotional in terms of uh, the way she lives her life at all but uh, in the beginning I think it was hard not to we both wanted I wanted a mummy and daddy they wanted a little boy and a little girl so we had this beautiful kind of romantic moment in 1990 how old were you I was three and a bit
0: you said your mum had trouble showing you emotion
1: Mm. were you aware of that when you were little um, I find it quite normal, to be honest. Um, I think going through the foster system to show real emotion and real love and affection would be disastrous. And I often wonder how foster carers can do the job that they do because I'm a over-emotional person and I would find it very difficult to let go. When you were growing up, what did you know about your birth family? Um, not much, to be honest. I had kind of vague memories. I had horror memories which um, stuck with me for a very long time. And I thought it was all in my head, so I left it at that. But, uh, what J- were they? I just I had a resounding image, bizarrely, of a pub. Um, just a big scary room, lots of loud noises, and lots of, well, loud noises and horrible things. Um, which actually didn't make any sense to me until, of course, um, I ended up in court and I heard all about it and I read my child court case records, and uh, it was horrendous. But, at the same time, it was closure because it gave you know validation to everything that I already knew. Um, so I mean, in a way, finding out horrible truths came as a relief. Very much so, very much so. It's one of the huge kind of pillars of my mental health instability is doubting myself and wondering what on earth's wrong with me and thinking, God, there must be something awfully wrong with me if I'm thinking things like this. Especially if they didn't happen, if I've imagined it, what does that make me? So um, to read it in black and white. It kind of gave it distance as well, because it was more like reading a story and thinking. It might be my name on the paper, but that's not me anymore. So it's um, it was good for separation, I think. What did you find out? Um, <laughs> I wrote in my blog, the easiest way to phrase it without being graphic, is I was very popular and shared amongst my dad and his friends. So yes, I just say it was a very popular Christmas present. That's a horrendous thing to find out. It was really really awful and uh, well I just I've still not quite adjusted to it to be honest still just words on a page and I think it has to stay that way for me to kind of cope. (laughs) Finding out the shocking
0: horrific truth about the abuse she suffered as a young child was a real turning point in Fran's life but by the time she found this out by the time it was confirmed But by this stage, she'd already descended into drug addiction. She'd already been sexually exploited again and was facing prison. So what happened to the young, privileged girl who had foreign holidays, private schooling, a seemingly loving, stable family that took her down this path? In Fran's eyes, it always came back to the first few years in her life. Years which gave her painful, unexplained memories. Years that, in her eyes, nobody wanted to discuss or didn't know how to discuss
1: it was just always going to happen I think we were destined to break definitely I was very bitter and angry as a child and I never understood why and I carried that through so I was just kind of left to deal with it and I didn't deal with it very well the more I got angry and resentful in the end I just turned and said fine (laughs) then I'm going to wreak havoc on your perfect little world and that's exactly what I did so how did you wreak havoc Oh, jeez, started at school misbehaving, being a pain, um, coming out, which really rocked the boat because that's one thing that they just couldn't tolerate at all. Um, then I went to university, carried on getting into trouble. An awful, awful thing happened when <laughs> I was at university and I had to lie to my parents to cope because I knew that their reaction just wouldn't be the one that I needed. Can you tell me what happened? Yes, I was raped in my second year at university. <laughs> which is horrific in itself, but then I found out I was pregnant, which was delightful. Um, Did you tell anyone? I told my best friend, because she had to go with me to the hospital, which wasn't straightforward in itself. Um, that went tits up. <laughs> Um And I ended up hemorrhaging in the hospital, and it all went disastrously wrong. My fertility is not wonderful because of it, so that's great for my future plans with Sarah. Um, So, yeah, disastrous. The only person you told was your best friend? At the time, yes. I mean, it's very much out in the open now because, obviously, I'm very open book policy now. Also, I think it gives substance to who I am and the reason I've lived the way I have and the things that I've done. Not that I need to endorse, you know, bad behaviour or bad decisions because, you know, there is no excuse for that. But, um it was very difficult, very difficult. I told her and she wanted to tell the world and, you know, wreak justice and this, that and the other. So much so that the police actually got in touch with me. When I was at university, I got a letter under the door and uh, another girl had come forward and they said, we've arrested this man and we just wondered if he could give a statement. And I said, I've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So I said no to the statement and that was 2011. How do you feel about that decision now? I regret it greatly. I do. It's one of my biggest regrets, actually. Mm. But at the time, I just... it would have destroyed me. It was bad enough, but to actually say it out loud and then not have anyone to pick me up would have been worse. How did you cope with holding that inside you? I went completely mental. (laughs) Yeah, I really did. I completely fell apart. After my abortion, I went back to my halls of residence and I shut my bedroom door and I didn't leave. And it was bizarre. I lived on tins of tuna, and I didn't leave my room. I lived in the dark. It was strange, very strange behaviour. Turned my phone off. Didn't engage on social media, which for me is very odd. And just shut the world out. And then university ended, and I went back to Manchester and smiled. And nobody knew any different. Happy, happy. Who were you angry with? Everyone. Yep, yeah, literally. And that was one of the main reasons I got into trouble, because I was an angry teenager up until the age of 24. I just felt like, why me? So I thought everyone else deserved a bit, which sounds awful to say out loud, but um, I was looking around at my family and other people. (sighs) In,
0: In lashing out, In hurting other people, it was you who got hurt the most.
1: That's the irony.
0: But it was one specific incident that took Fran to the next level of her self-destruction. When she was told she wasn't
1: welcome at a big family event. We love you, but please don't come. So that was it for me. So I packed my bag. I took all my allowance money like a posh girl and I went to Manchester train station and I thought, airport or London, I don't know where to go. So I got on the train and went to London and when I got to London I thought, what the hell am I going to do? So I looked on the internet for couch surfing or a hostel or something that would kind of tide me over. Well I decided my choice career, despite being intelligent and educated, would be the thing that would give me the most power. And what I ended up finding was a brothel, and a pimp, and a man who sold me a story and said it was not as bad as everyone thought it was. You'd make a lot of money. He'd look after me. Everything would be fine. And that's not what happened at all. It started off perfectly naively, and it was, you know, dinners and civilized. But then it took a turn, and it wasn't. But I honestly didn't care. It made me a lot of money. I was very good at it. I. you know, master of manipulation, tell people what they want to hear. I've been good at that for as long as I can remember. And uh, with that came cocaine. And I thought I was happy. (laughs) I had lots of money. I was living the lifestyle. I had the designer clothes. I had the posh apartment. I had an intense coke habit. None of my friends knew. None of them cared because we were just having a great time and I was footing the bill, so it was always fine. And then when I decided, you know, I should probably stop... I didn't know what else to do. Cocaine completely took me because it made me happy. I still say that now, still say that now. People laugh at me and say, would you ever do it again? I said, I don't think I'll ever be that unhappy again. (laughs) But the temptation, I don't know. Drug addicts have uh, different coping mechanisms, but anyone who says that temptation goes away forever, I don't believe that for a second. I think you just have to know it's not worth it. And that's entirely the mantra. It's not worth it. Lying, it's not worth it. Stealing, it's not worth it. Cocaine, it's not worth it. At the time, because I felt completely worthless, didn't make any difference.
0: Was there there any love in your life at this time?
1: Not at all, but it's good to look back on. It's one of these, did I dream that moments? Because honestly, where I am now, I have to pinch myself and say, did that happen? It's interesting, isn't
0: it, that... You've talked about your childhood being almost like a movie you look back on now and wonder whether it actually happened to you. The next focus of your life as well, this time in London, you look back on and wonder if it was actually you. It's happened again, but in a completely different way.
1: I think that's why it's been so difficult to sort myself out and to get back and to rebuild. I've kind of hopped from these different fantasies. Am I supposed to be the posh girl? Am I supposed to be the hooker? Am I supposed to be the street rat from London that got adopted by two prince and princesses? I I don't know.
0: It was only after some time of working as a prostitute and becoming dependent on cocaine to function that Fran decided to take a deep breath and turn her personal mobile phone back on. She was ready to face the reality of her
1: frantic family, but she was in for a shock. I didn't have any text messages from any of my family. I had completely disappeared off the face of the planet and nobody cared. And I just found that really weird. A phone call home resulted in disgust and disbelief. So I thought, I can stay here and I can do this forever or I can go back to Manchester and try and put my life back together. So I came back up north. It wasn't greeted with uh, kindness or my God, that's awful, let's sort you out, come on, we can do this together, which, you know, I must have fantasised it might be, otherwise I would never have got on the train. So I kind of bumbled around in Manchester, not really doing anything, did some escorting up here, big mistake, the city's too small, still haunts me to this day. Um, And then by chance I met Sarah, but she had no idea of the car crash she was getting involved with. Were Um, you
0: still on drugs at this point?
1: More or less, yeah. Um, (laughs) I tried to go straight and then relapsed and went on serious benders. Um, But again, I was so good at hiding it. She never knew. Nobody knew.
0: But meeting her long-term partner and quitting the escorting, cutting back on the drugs, this wasn't the end of Fran's downward spiral. In fact,
1: she was yet to make the biggest mistake of her life. When I got into trouble, I know exactly why I did it, because I like money, and I like what money does for me, which is buy people, because it's the only thing I know what to do, Um, which is what I did with Sarah, essentially. Even though she told me a million times, you don't have to, I have this compulsion, let's go on holiday, I'll take you out for dinner, I'll buy you this, what do you want, let me do something. I had a flash of honesty where she took me to Platfields Park and we fed the geese for a day. And she said, did you have fun today? And I said, yes. And she said, did you spend any money? And I said, no. Right, what does that tell you?
0: But your childhood was built on memories that cost money. Your childhood was built on memories of trips away and holidays away and days out.
1: Exactly right, exactly right. So, you know, on my kind of journey of self-forgiveness, I appeased that very much with thinking... Bad choices, yes, but built in, very much so. Um, So, of course, when I was busy defrauding half of Manchester and collecting a pot of gold, which very quickly went up my nose or on material bullshit, (laughs) it wasn't worth it. And it's one of the reasons I handed myself into the police, because I realised very soon after, and I'd obviously stopped taking the drugs once I'd spent all the money and looked at the situation, I thought... There's no way back from this.
0: How did you cross that line? I mean, you'd, you'd engage in criminal activity and drug taking and also in, in escorting and prostitution.
1: I was living in a flat that was not very nice and it's all I could afford at the time. And I thought Sarah deserved more and it was shameful and I didn't want to bring people there and it wasn't what I was portraying on the outside world. So it didn't fit. And for me, that was danger because it meant people might start to see the gaps in who I was. So I looked for a nicer house, and I found one. And I thought, hmm, I'm still in contract with this one. What am I going to do? I'll sublet it. And I got such a massive response. (laughs) And so many people turned up, and they all had cash ready, saying, can we have it? Can we have it? I'll pay you a deposit now. So, of course, the criminal in me and the cokehead in me and the absolute materialistic dick in me went, you can all have it. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, I just saw money and took it. And I gave my name, I gave my passport. So I knew I was gonna get caught, I knew. But in the spare of the moment, I just did not care. I didn't care about the people I was stealing from. I didn't care about anything until it hit me. And then I thought, what have you done? Who are you? I was so disgusted with myself. When I was arrested, um, there was a woman who had a child who I'd taken money from. Guilt. I think that's what catches up. <laughs> and uh, she didn't want to make a police statement. She thought I was a nice girl, <laughs> but she needed the money back for Christmas presents. And I thought, you're a fucking animal. <laughs> what have you done? Never forgive it. Hmm.
0: Fran was charged and her case went to Crown Court. It was during her legal team's preparation that she learned the truth about her past about her sexual abuse her birth mother's own imprisonment awful, shocking, sad facts which confirmed what she'd always feared but above everything else Fran just wanted to be punished punished for what she'd done and she said she could see what the prosecution
1: would think. You've been given everything and with that you've done absolutely nothing and I thought Yes, and that's why I've got my bag packed and that's why I'm ready to go, because you're quite right. It frustrated me throughout my whole court case that I had lawyers and barristers pushing for a good outcome for me and I honestly thought, I don't deserve one. Can we not just go in there and say, I did this, I'm sorry, punish me, because that's what I need. That's what I deserve. That's what would make it somehow right.
0: Did you really think you were going to prison?
1: Yes, very much so. When they were reading out the verdict and the judge had made a decision the man with the handcuffs came and stood next to me in the dock and I thought, she's not even opened her mouth and they're ready to take me. And she said, and I almost died, I'm imposing the two-year custodial sentence. Long pause. I looked at the clock and I think time stopped. And She said, but I'm suspending it for 18 months. (laughs) How did you feel at that moment? I couldn't breathe. Of course...
0: Fran's suspended sentence came with a large swathe of conditions, a compensation order, mental health intervention, drug rehabilitation and probation. And it was a recommendation from Fran's probation officer that totally changed her life.
1: I was expecting to be terrorised at probation. I had seen... You know, I'd done a lot of... It's really sad. It's the geek in me. I'd done a lot of research about what to expect and how to behave, what to wear. I mean, I don't know who Googles what to wear to a probation office, but I did. Um, so I turned up, you know, smart cadge. <laughs> um, and so I got called through, buzzed through security. We go into this tiny little box room. She locks the door behind me and has got a safety badge on. I thought, "Geez, what are you expecting to happen in here? And um, we sit down. She's got a file opens it and said you're going to be on Masterchef weren't you and I said yes 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 I was there was just the small matter of a crown court case that got in the way you were g- you <laughs> were going to be on Masterchef you were selected for Masterchef yeah but apparently the BBC don't like uh criminal investigations <laughs> while you're going through the audition I process I suppose
0: if court dates conflict <laughs> with transmission dates there might be an issue there
1: yeah yeah but my probation officer was in awe of this and she was a proper foodie So, and um, she said we haven't got any cooking classes but what we do have is a baking course do you want to go on it? and I thought, no (laughs) I hate baking, I can't bake I can't make cakes, I'm rubbish I don't like weighing things out I'm very much freestyle in the kitchen Um, and she said I think it'll be good for you you'll get to meet other people it's quite social, give it a go so reluctantly I did which was strange for me because i went to this youth center in moss side again it's not somewhere i've ever been in my life before so that was an experience as well and um it was a room full of men scary men what i would consider scary men from my uh kind of bubble and um they'd all been to strange ways or they'd been elsewhere and you know a hardcore prison and um we're all made to wear aprons and get baking and i just thought what a ridiculous thing to be doing on a monday and uh, we loved it we all made conversation there was no judgment well i, I admit my pre-judgment was a little bit oh my god <laughs> but um it was great it was amazing and the woman who taught us honestly didn't care she could have been in a room full of teenagers at a private school she could have been in a room full of prisoners with prison guards she honestly didn't care and that's what changed for me the breaking down of boundaries and feeling normal for the first time throughout my entire court process where I could walk into a room and people didn't care if I was good or I was bad or you know if I could bake or if I couldn't it honestly didn't matter it was amazing it was liberating so um I turned into a baker
0: <laughs> so just three days in a kitchen with with hardened criminals in floral prints <laughs> yeah. um with a fantastic teacher changed your life 72 hours changed your life.
1: It really did. I mean, I was so proud and giddy. Every day when I left, I rang Sarah. It's the first thing I did. And I said, oh my God, I made a soda bread today and it's actually edible. It's amazing. And then I'd get back to our halls and she was at her parents for a few days. So I was like, "Mm, I would save you some, but it's so good, I'm going to eat it. And then by the time it got to the Wednesday, I was like, okay, I've got a rye loaf. I don't really like rye bread, so I'll save you that one. And we're having this debate as to Oh, can you not at least save me the white bloomer? And I thought, mm, there might be something in this. I really, I've realised I've spent three nights in a row talking about bread to my girlfriend. I've not said I love you, I've not said I miss you. I've just said, I'm eating soda bread and it's amazing. <laughs> so I said to Sarah, when you get back, can we go to the supermarket and buy some ingredients because I really want to try this at home. So we baked and we baked and it got better and it got better and it's amazing because on our laptop we've got kind of the history of bread and <laughs> some of the first ones we made look awful <laughs> I mean really they are hideous um, and then after a few weeks I thought we'll do a market because the woman who taught me how to bake uh, thought I had a knack for it so she emailed me and said this is what you need to do you need to get your insurance and you need to get food hygiene then you can do whatever you want to do so I did lovely Market our first ever one and it was a strange journey because um we had no money. I was paying the compensation order. And um, I went to Longsight Market, of all places, looking for second-hand wicker baskets to jazz the stall up. And I couldn't find any that were affordable. And then I saw this amazing vintage suitcase. So I said to the guy, how much? And he said, £3, pounds, but you have to take all the rubbish that's inside it. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> Longsight Market, what on earth is going to be in this suitcase? And uh, thankfully, it was just a strange drawing of a cat and some coat hangers. So... <laughs> Each to their own. (laughs) But um, this suitcase became our kind of symbol. And uh, we did our first market and people really enjoyed it. And it was really successful and we sold out. And then we did another one and another one. And then people would kind of turn up and say, oh, you're the girl with the suitcase. And I thought, hmm. And now they turn up, you know, we're two years on, more or less. And now they turn up and say, oh, you're the girl with the soda breads. I mean, we've got a market on Sunday, and I know full well, whilst it opens at 11, there will be people there at half ten kind of peeping around the side going, have you got any left? (laughs) Yes, come on, come on. (laughs) How does it feel now being
0: not the girl who was adopted, not the girl who's the escort, not the girl who's the drug addict, not the girl who's the fraudster, but the girl who bakes that great bread in the suitcase?
1: I mean somebody said to me the other day we were having a deep and meaningful and they said, Are you happy Fran? And I said, Yes. They said, Do you know who you are? And I said, I oh, know exactly who I am. I'm the Barker Baker <laughs> The way I live my life, compulsive lying, manipulation. I can tell myself anything. I tell myself I'm you know, the queen, I'm Carly Minogue. I could be I can trick myself genuinely. I really could be anything. What I didn't realise is I can be anything just have to try i don't have to lie (laughs) and that's what's so amazing now i've done the trying and stopped the lying i've become something incredible since those early days franz won multiple business
0: awards she set up her own baking courses for ex-offenders she regularly speaks at business events and motivational events and she's appeared on national tv and now
1: she's about to open her very first bakery shop I always had it in me to do something great and whilst bread making sounds very strange and, you know, it's a very odd way to go about it um, Baking is going to be a great career for me but also, you know, Sarah and I are now in a place where we can get married, we can think about children and growing up and everything I wanted when I was younger I never knew how to achieve, not properly and now it's all right there (laughs) I can do it For someone who thinks
0: everything around them is a brick wall, they can't see a way out, they don't know who they are, they're in that place where you were at, I suppose, when you were in London, at your very lowest,
1: what can you say to them? I think it's too cliche to say don't give up because sometimes it takes giving up to realise what you gave up. You know, there's been times where I've just looked at my life and thought, it's not worth it. What am I trying for? But honestly... Do something small, something so small to make you feel good about yourself. It could be so trivial. I said this a few weeks ago when I gave a talk to a women's centre. Start small. Did you take the rubbish out this morning? No, because you didn't feel up to it. You just thought, what's the point? It's so menial, it's so tedious. Take it out. Did you do the washing up? No, I didn't want to. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to look at the sun. I don't want to speak to people. I don't want to do anything. Do it. You'll feel better. (laughs) For me, always, make a loaf of bread. It's, you know, I'll just say it because it's my passion, but uh, something small, something small. Uh, Even, I don't know, make a phone call, tell a joke, speak to someone you love or think of someone you love. I mean, when I was in London, I was completely lost, but I would have escapism into fantasyland, and I would think about my family, good or bad. You know there's something worth fighting for and I think that's what you need to find, something worth fighting for. And it's really easy. It's just you. (laughs) You know, I could sit in London in my snazzy apartment and think there's more than this. I'll fight for my family, I'll win them back, I'll fall in love, I'll fight for whoever that may be. No, be selfish, be you, fight for you.
0: Francesca Barker was talking to me, Sam Walker. You've been listening to What Goes On Here. Coming up next, episode two, Alfie. I left and I cracked up. All this new stuff, this noise and this discomfort just set me mad. I went mad. 15 years in training, 20 years wanting to do something and then not. I, I don't want to sort of dig into it and think, was all that a waste of time?